Welcome to the latest edition of the I Hate Critics Movie Review Podcast. I'm your host today, at least, uh, professional film critic Sean Patrick. Find us online at Facebook, uh, facebook.com and I Hate Critics, uh, at Critics Pod on Twitter and on Patreon, I Hate Critics, uh, the podcast, so you can support us there. We would love you to, to, to support us there and to help us out a lot to uh, continue the show uh, for another uh, 10 years. We've been doing this for over a decade now, if you can believe it. Uh, myself and Bob, at least. Uh, Jeff, you know, he's, he's new. Uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, yeah, uh, talk, it's just me this week uh, because uh, Bob and Jeff have life stuff uh, in the way. Uh, they weren't able to see uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. So we're going to save that and hold it off and uh, hold that over for the Halloween weekend and talk about that along with Five Nights and Freddy's and uh, do our Martin Scorsese top fives on the next episode next week. So... Uh, be listening for that. But this week, I, I'm taking the opportunity to host the show uh, by myself this week to talk about movies of the 1990s. Uh, I've been writing a book, uh, if you, in case you hadn't heard. I'm working on a book called Horror in the 90s, and it's all about uh, the horror films of the 1990s. I'm watching uh, wide-release horror movies from uh, January of 1990 through uh, December of 1999, and... Just going through and writing, you know, lengthy reviews of the many, many interesting and fascinating horror movies of the 90s. And I'm doing this so I can kind of get an overview of the genre in the 90s, this sort of pivotal time in the horror genre. And you know, talk about these kind of strange movies that have had either no legacy or continue to be influential today and see why they remain so influential. It's kind of the same idea behind you know, the, the uh, 1993 podcast, the 30-year podcast that we do, where we talk about the movies that were released 30 years ago that weekend. Uh, the idea is to just kind of look and see what, what it is that transcends time, that remains in our memories, and, you know, the things that don't uh, essentially remain in our memories. And so I finished the first year, uh, the first year, 1990, uh, in horror. Uh, it was an unusual year. There were 23 horror movies that were that are included uh in my book um that released something of a uh, really received something of a theatrical release so i've written 23 uh, reviews of movies of horror movies just from 1990 and i thought i'd run down my ranking of those and talk a little bit about each one and of course i uh, you can find all of my horror in the 90s reviews on uh, horror.media that's horror.media. Just search my name, uh, Sean Patrick, and you can find the uh, Horror in the 90s series that I'm doing and all 23 reviews of 23 horror films that were released in 1990. I'm going to run down all the ones I've written about uh, for that year and uh, just do a kind of a brief overview on each and uh, share that with you. And maybe you'll consider supporting Horror in the 90s. Uh, I do have uh, the opportunity for you to... Uh, Make donations via either uh, Kofi.com or via uh, Vocal itself. Uh, Vocal being the uh, place where my much of my written out output you can find, uh, you, which of course is also on our Facebook page, Facebook.com, and I hate critics. But uh, uh, basically, I'll just run down, you know, through the through these movies, these twenty three horror films that were released in nineteen ninety. Uh, first up, let's talk about Soul Taker. The only reason anyone remembers Soul Taker. It's not because it stars uh, Martin Sheen's brother. Um, <laughs> Soul Taker is best remembered and really only available now 
uh, via Mystery Science Theater. Uh, they did a tremendous episode on Soul Taker, uh, which is just a truly terrible movie, but terrible in a way that's kind of entertaining. It's weird to kind of put this at the bottom of my list because I actually enjoyed it a lot more than you know several of the other movies that we're going to talk about uh, on this episode. But uh, I only enjoyed it because I had that Mystery Science Theater accompaniment. You can't really see Soul Taker uh, without <laughs> without having it on the uh, the Mystery Science Theater commentary. Uh, as I watched it that way, and I did write about it without necessarily spending all of my time talking about uh, Mike and the Bots, but uh, Soul Taker is a very confusing movie. Uh, the The star of the film, Joe Estevez, uh, is a soul taker. He takes souls. There are kids who are trying to defy the soul taker. It's kind of like, <laughs> is it like Final Destination kind of? Where they, they're in an accident and they survive and then the guy shows up to take their souls to hell or wherever he's taking them, but they're not there and so he's got to go hunt them down, essentially. I think that's the plot. It's filled with all sorts of weird, crazy, and very, very dumb things, Soul Taker. But it is very entertainingly stupid. It is entertainingly dumb, uh, Soul Taker, and that is really the hallmark of it. Uh, it really shouldn't be at the bottom of my list of horror movies of, of 1990 because of, just for the simple fact that it is so, so very dumb. Uh, it's a film that was, it stars Joe Estevez and Vivian Schilling. It's directed by Michael Rissi. Uh, and <laughs> I just, I, I, I enjoyed what MST did to it. I enjoyed watching just Joe Estevez be as weird as Joe Estevez is. Um, there's so much confusion and so much oddity, but there's a scene in this movie uh, in which the characters of Natalie and Zach are traveling to Natalie's house. They're still unaware that they're, that they're just wandering souls. So they are dead, and their souls are just wandering the earth. And Joe Estevez is supposed to take their souls somewhere. Uh, the, at Natalie's house, they find that their, the mom can actually see them. She's acting kind of strange. Uh, Natalie's mom uh, tells Natalie to take a bath. She insists on drawing a bath for her. And then once she's goaded her daughter into finally taking a bath, she actually watches her from the doorway. <laughs> she undresses, which is weird. Now, it's Joe Estevez, who his character, the soul taker, is being a creep, uh, impersonating Natalie's mom. But Why? Why exactly is he doing this? It's anybody's guess. There's just really no, <laughs> no point or purpose to it. The scene, uh, I don't know if it, there's actually nudity in the scene or not. I, I don't, because I, I, like I said, I watched the Mystery Science Theater version, and the Mystery Science Theater version obviously doesn't have nudity in it because they were showing those on TV. So, such a weird thing. Robert Zadar. I forgot to even mention that Robert Zadar is in this movie <laughs> wearing what appears to be a George Michael costume wig, like 80s, you know, faith era George Michael <laughs> wig. It's very, or not even that. No, it's a wham. It's more of a wham costume wig, I think. Not even 80s. <laughs> Early 80s, mid 80s, George Michael wham wig. Uh, and seeing Robert Zadar with that giant, you know, chin wearing that wig, that's one of the most entertaining things. Really, truly, it actually makes Soul Taker kind of transcendent in terms of being a very, very funny and not intending to be very funny horror movie. But yeah, I ranked it as the worst horror movie of, 
of 1990, the 23rd ranked horror movie of the year, but it's probably better than, I would say, <laughs> 12 other movies on this list. Uh, Troll 2, best worst movie, uh, is uh, ranked number 22. It's just really, really bad, and is as fun as it is in how bad it is, it's so bad that you really can't justify ranking it over movies where people actually tried. Uh, <laughs> Troll 2 is wildly entertaining, but it's kind of more entertaining when you think about the backstory and when you learn about the facts behind it that uh, nobody knew they were making a troll movie. They were making <laughs> this is basically purchased and named troll and it's troll and in, in name only, essentially. Uh, it's one of those IP grabs uh, that, that have always been popular in Hollywood. Uh, Troll in the 1980s was made and was quite successful. It had you know, a cast that include, included Sonny Bono and um, oh, I can't, Julia, 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 Julia Louis-Dreyfus is in there as well. Uh, and uh, one of the guys from Law & Order, I think, is the lead. And so it had like uh, some recognizable faces in it, and it was successful enough that somebody you know, grabbed hold of that IP and then began just slapping it onto other movies just to, <laughs> just to keep making troll movies and to keep using the name as a marketing campaign. And they didn't really care if the movie was any good. Uh, Claudio Fergoso, of course, the director of this, he, had no, he couldn't speak English. He's directing an American movie set in Utah, and he speaks no English. So he's having to talk to somebody who's then having to talk to his actors to tell them what they want. And it's just, uh, it was doomed. Troll 2 was just a doomed production from beginning to end. Claudio Fergoso still doesn't know, still doesn't understand that people see Troll 2 as a bad movie. <laughs> he, doesn't, he does not understand that, uh, that people look at his movie and, and laugh. Uh, and... He still thinks that he made something that is uh, like a serious, like horror movie, <laughs> which just makes the the tragedy of Troll Two just so much more hilarious. Um, and he, he, you know, his uh, his his wife is it Rosella Drudy is Rosella Drudy his wife. Uh, she was talking. She's still to this day like, and you can see this in Best Worst Movie. She talks about. Uh, Troll 2 and the script, and, and she's such a weirdly theatrical person that you can't tell if she's being serious or not. I think she's being serious. She co-wrote the script, and when she talks about the script, she says, quote, it's a ferocious analysis of today's society, unquote. And what? <laughs> what are you talking about? What part of... Troll 2 is any kind of ferocious analysis of today's society. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand any of that. I really don't. But uh, yeah, that's my number 22 ranked horror movie of 1990. Troll 2. What else is there to say about Troll 2? It's really bad, but it's bad in a way that's entertaining. And I probably, again, much like Soul Taker, it's probably more entertaining than you know, at least five or six other movies on this list. A movie like Frankenstein Unbound, uh, 1990, directed by uh, Roger Corman, with an all-star cast. <laughs> How he got this cast together to make a movie like Frankenstein Unbound is beyond me. But apparently, sometime in the 80s, or early 90s, 
uh, the IP of Frankenstein became public domain, and it allowed Roger Corman to then step in and take Frankenstein and actually make his very own Frankenstein movie. But he got Raul Julia, John Hurt, Bridget Fonda, uh, and Jason Patrick, uh, and Michael Hunchins from uh, NXS are all in this movie <laughs> about a particle physicist who builds a device capable of vaporizing anything it touches in hope of ending a war once and for all. Unfortunately, while testing the prototype device, he actually sends a man purling backwards in time to a small Swiss village in 1870, where he meets Victor Frankenstein, who is hard at work contending with the complications of his own mixed guided experiment, which is, of course, what we're talking about here, Frankenstein. What a bizarre movie. I mean, truly <laughs> bizarre. There's like, so a guy's like going back in time. He's meeting the real life Victor Frankenstein. But then also <laughs> we've got Bridget Fonda is playing Mary Shelley. And you've got Jason Patrick who's playing Lord Byron. And you've got <laughs> Percy Shelley played by Michael Hutchins. This is such a strange, misguided, bizarre movie. And their conception of Frankenstein is really one of the most unusual looking of all time, to say the least. He's bald. He's got long hair. (laughs) It's absolutely ridiculous. He's played by an actor named Nick Brimble, who's not done uh, very much. Roger Corman directing an unlicensed Frankenstein movie is, of course, just a part of film history that is uh, kind of irresistible in a way. Just the idea, the notion uh, that, <laughs> that, uh, that, that there's an opportunity there, that there's a time in our history when Roger Corman was able to take on a major IP and, and make it his own in his own inimitable way. It's bad. It's really bad. But <laughs> it's also, it just the fact of the existence of that movie is kind of fun. Uh, the existence of Frankenstein Unbound, that this ever happened, is sort of... Uh, iconic in a way because <laughs> it's definitely a movie that should not it should not exist and yet it does uh let's see what else we're talking about here number 20 on my list is the guardian and of course william Friedkin, uh just recently having passed away uh known for the exorcist known for, you know being kind of a horror icon simply because he made the exorcist he didn't often actually work in the horror genre he worked in action movies uh, and he worked in drama. You know, he was a guy uh, who was more in that uh, world, but he's remembered as a horror movie director, which makes the tragedy of a movie like The Guardian so much more, well, oddly tragic. Uh, the Guardian is an awful movie. <laughs> it's just absolutely, it borders on being just completely unwatchable. Um, <laughs> the story of The Guardian is, is a couple who hire an, a nanny to work for them. They do, ter- they do a terrible job of vetting this woman. They don't even bother to call the people who sent her uh, there to talk to see if she's actually a, a worthy of being their, uh, the guardian of their baby. It turns out, in, in reality, the character played by Jenny Seagrove is some sort of demon who's connected to a tree, like a tree goddess of some kind. And she needs babies to sacrifice to the tree? Yeah. And then she dies turning into a tree? Is that what's happening? 
don't know. This movie is so weird and so bad. <laughs> it stars uh, Dwyer Brown, who played uh, uh, Kevin Costner's ghost dad in Field of Dreams. Uh, Carrie Lowell, who is in La- Law and Order. Uh, the Law and Order crew just struggled before they found Law and Order, didn't they? You got <laughs> One of them's in Troll. Another one is here in The Guardian. Uh, Jenny Seagrove, though, actually delivers a pretty great performance in The Guardian. Like, she is deeply committed to playing this uh, tree demon character. But it's such a, it's just such a, a doomed film. Uh, I don't think really Friedkin had many great ideas. I think he got this and, and just tried to rush it out there to get it done. Uh, it was really just kind of a studio assignment for him and a paycheck. <laughs> he was, yeah, he says, and, and a marketing campaign. Friedkin in, in and of himself was a marketing campaign for the movie The Guardian because it was his first time returning to the horror movie genre after The Exorcist. And so you've got, you've got that aspect that they're, they're excited about. The fact that they have, you know, Bill Friedkin and they've got him returning to the horror genre. You could put that on a poster. The man who made the exorcist is back in, you know, in pog form. (laughs) He's back in the horror genre. Uh, and, and that was essentially all that they wanted out of Friedkin was his name value. And that's all Friedkin gave them was his name value. <laughs> his reputation. That's pretty much what he contributed to the Guardian, because otherwise, because he certainly didn't contribute any much, very much of his talent to the Guardian, because it's an awful movie. It's just unwatchable. Uh, that's one. That one's probably should. Be, that's the one that definitely probably should be ranked beneath something like, you know, Troll Two or or Soul Taker. Both of those probably belong uh, higher on the list than either of, uh, uh, than, than certainly of this movie, because this movie is like a true epic boondoggle of a bad movie. Uh, next on our list, we're up to number uh, 19, Frankenhooker. Uh, Frankenhooker is a movie that, has a, that basically exists because of that title. The only reason anyone remembers or thinks about Frankenhooker is because it has that uh, very unique title and a very unique sort of existence in the public uh, consciousness. It's about a guy whose girlfriend is just absolutely destroyed by a mechanical lawnmower that he, or not mechanic, an automatic lawnmower that he built so that he could control with a uh, remote control. It was a gift for his father-in-law. It ends up killing his girlfriend in a, uh, in a a haze of grief. He decides to, uh, collect a bunch of uh, sex workers and kill them and then sew their body parts together to create to recreate his girlfriend whose head he has kept uh, on ice since the day she died. And he hopes that he can, you know, sort of search, suture her back together uh, via the parts of these sex workers that he kills. And that is a, a funny premise, I guess. It's certainly... An absurdist premise. Uh, it does trade, of course, obviously on the Frankenstein legend. It's the second movie on this list to do that. Universal monsters, you know, were abused once they became <laughs> part of. The, once the idea became part of the public domain, uh, pretty much anybody could make something that was related to uh, the Frankenstein lore or use you know the, the tropes created by Mary Shelley, and it, it's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> because then we end up with movies like Frankenhooker. I know this one has a reputation among fans because it is so very absurd and it's so very silly. 
There are a lot of fans who like this movie. Um, <laughs> I, I did in my review, I called it a visionary work of cinema, which it is. It is. It's a vision so bizarre and singular that you can barely wrap your mind around the existence of such a vision. Like, I would want to be in the room where someone thought of the idea for Frankenhooker and then wrote a screenplay. They then took that idea to other people. And instead of laughing this bizarre idea out of existence, these other people go, you know what? Here's some money. Go make that movie. <laughs> I just, the idea that there was someone who read the script for Frankenhooker and heard the pitch for Frankenhooker and thought to themselves, you know what? I want to be in the Frankenhooker business. This is going to make money. <laughs> it's just so bizarre to me. And that's really the only thing I find actually genuinely entertaining about Frankenhooker. Nothing else about it is anything that I find remotely interesting or good. Uh, but the idea, the notion of it is, is way more entertaining to me than anything actually about Frankenhooker. Number 18 is Jacob's Ladder. And I know this will be a controversial opinion for a lot of people. I there's, there's a lot of people who really appreciate uh, Jacob's Ladder, uh, directed by Adrian Lyne. I am not an Adrian Lyne fan. I don't think Adrian Lyne is a very good director. I think he's a director who likes to touch on, you know, timely subjects. And I think he, he uses those timely subjects as sort of a, a way to perpetuate his own relevance as a director. And I think he's done that throughout his entire career. Uh, he's done it throughout his entire career, just creating movies that were based off of, you know, the most immediate buzz that he could get. And, and really, he, he, he is talented. I mean, I'm going to obviously think he's very talented because he was successful and, and his movies don't look bad. And certainly Jacob's Ladder doesn't look bad. I just don't quite know what he was going for with this story. It's the story of a deeply haunted Vietnam veteran named Jacob, played by Tim Robbins, who uh, apparently nearly died in Vietnam after his unit was subject to a surprise attack. Uh, Jacob himself was stabbed in the gut and uh, had to have his intestines like pressed back into his body before he could be taken to a hospital. He remembers being gutted by that bayonet, and it haunts him. Uh, to the day when we meet him when he's working as a postal worker in New York City and is continuing to have these strange visions uh, being visited by numerous, you know, people uh, from his past. And uh, basically this movie has remained uh, relevant and well-known because of the Jacob's Ladder scenario, because the character was actually dead from the start of the film. Uh, he was never actually alive, and this is all just kind of a hallucination of a life he thinks he might have had had he lived. Uh, and that sort of, again, Line was good at you know, grabbing the zeitgeist. He was good at grabbing something that could be marketable and memorable. I just don't think he ever really accomplished any specific kind of vision. Uh, I think he, he, he liked his mostly his perverted subjects, uh, his, you know, his sexy movies. He liked sweaty, sexy movie stars. That was his big thing. Uh, this was uh, you know, kind of a shift in gears from him, but he still goes through. You know, there's plenty of there's nudity and sex in this movie, uh, sort of needless nudity in, ja in Jacob's Ladder. I'm not opposed to nudity, but make it matter. Make it matter. It doesn't matter here. It's just, it's just kind of jarring and unexpected uh, topless scenes for, for no good reason because it's Adrian Lyne. That's what he does. Uh, I just don't think there's anything 
I don't think, I think Adrian Lyne is pretty much an empty vessel to me as a director. He's a, a visual stylist. He's a guy who knows how to make a movie that will capture your, you know, imagination in terms of just its premise and ideas, but he doesn't actually execute a movie very well, in my opinion. A storytelling, at least. Like I said, his movies are all very professional looking, but in terms of storytelling, not a fan. We're up to number 17, The First Power, starring uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. It is a, uh, a cop movie set in the world of demonic possession. The First Power essentially is the ability to come back to life, and a serial killer has apparently uh, captured this... Uh, He's apparently captured this ability to come back from the dead. Uh, and he's using this to continue his you know, work as a serial killer. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is the, uh, is the cop who initially caught the serial killer, who then had him executed, and now, of course, is chasing him down as he has come back to life. Uh, I like Lou Diamond Phillips. I don't like this movie at all. <laughs> this movie is very, is very strange. There's, there are two characters in this movie, one played by uh, Tracy Griffiths and another played by Elizabeth Arlen, who are essentially serving the same purpose and for reasons that don't make any sense. Uh, they're, they're playing essentially the same functional character, but are, are <laughs> two different characters for no good reason. Uh, a nun, Sister Marguerite Elizabeth Arlen, uh, is informing the her her higher ups of the church that there is a uh, somebody who has discovered the ability to hold the first power to come back from the dead. Uh, she's dismissed and she doesn't even try anymore. She just gives up immediately <laughs> after she's told. After they tell her not to pursue it, she just walks away. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is the cop. He starts working with Tracy Griffiths, who's a psychic. Uh, who then takes over essentially the actress function that should have been played by the nun character. I mean, the nun is the one with all the exposition. She's got all the backstory. Uh, she should be the one to go to the cops and say, hey, this is what's going on. Instead, they introduce this character, Tracy Griffiths, who has no knowledge of what's going on other than, I guess she might be a psychic. <laughs> it's very strange. It's a very odd movie. It's very poorly executed, very, very poorly made, and not particularly entertaining. Lou Diamond Phillips is doing his best. The kills, I mean, I guess are horror movie levels. This is a, this is much a thriller as it is a horror movie. It stretches kind of the boundaries of what you would call a horror movie because it's not a very good at being a horror movie. Uh, cop movies tend to struggle when you're trying to cobble them into the horror genre. And the first power, yeah, it's just, it's just bad. It, uh, it probably belongs actually below Troll 2 and Soul Taker because it's not nearly as entertaining as either of those two movies. Number 16 from 1990 is Gremlins 2, The New Batch. I spent the entire review just talking about uh, the, the Key and Peele sketch. Because <laughs> the Key and Peele sketch on Gremlins 2, in which they have... Uh, a movie script doctor played by Jordan Peele come in and just come up with all these wacky ideas that actually did end up in the movie. <laughs> and it's just a whole, this whole encapsulation of a bizarre pitch meeting. Uh, it's way funnier than anything that's actually in Gremlins 2, the new batch. Uh, I, I don't enjoy Gremlins 2. I find it just to be too gross and uh, too poorly acted and too poorly executed to actually be entertained. I didn't also didn't like the original Gremlins all that much. So I was really kind of the wrong audience for this. 
Uh, but just solely based on how entertaining Jordan Peele is in uh, telling us about what Gremlins 2 is, is way more entertaining than anything about Gremlins 2. Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 is number 15 from 1990, and it's way better than it ever should have been. Like, this is not a movie that should be any good. Uh, it's taking off from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a sequel. It's the first time that somebody tried to cap- capitalize on that uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre IP, and uh, it's still, it's not a good movie by any stretch, but it's a movie that that does sort of keep the spirit of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, Kate Hodge is the lead here alongside uh, Viggo Mortensen, or opposite Viggo Mortensen, who plays uh, one of the new members of the Sawyer family. Uh, this whole movie was based on a marketing campaign that uh, somebody started who had the, you know, the guy who had the rights to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre made a mini uh, trailer with uh, Kane Hodder playing the role of, uh, uh, of Leatherface. And they had this custom saw made that said the, you know, the saw is family. Uh, and when that was shown to potential marketing partners, they're like, yeah, let's make this movie. We can, we can capitalize on this IP. That said, they did go ahead and make what is a relatively serviceable slasher movie. Like, there are elements of this movie that do work. Ken Forey is in, in this movie. And Ken, Ken Forey is a, you know, a horror movie icon. And he does his best to do what he can with this rather uh, lay, you know, rel- relatively meager material. I mean, it's, it's a lot of very basic slasher movie stuff. But it's, it's done well enough. I guess, but it's not a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, and it gets held back by that by that idea. It's really this movie could exist on its own and be kind of a forgettable, uh, but not terrible slasher movie. But as it is, uh, because it's got that name, Le- Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three, it places expectations upon this movie that it can't possibly reach, and it does lessen your experience of it to know that they're capitalizing on the IP of one of the greatest movies ever made in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which it is one of the greatest movies ever made. And I know that's not, that's a controversial opinion for some. It's absolutely true to me. Speaking of cashing in on IP, uh, Tom Savini directed his very own version of Night of the Living Dead, starring Tony Todd in 1990. It's number 14 of 1990. And why, why did you do this, Tom Savini? What was the point of this? This is utterly pointless. Uh, It's gory. It's, Uh, reminiscent of what Romero did, uh, but it's not necessary. There's no need for this to exist. Night of the Living Dead already existed. It was already there. There was no need to make another one. There's certainly no need to make one that is uh, very much like (laughs) what what Gus Van Sant did with Psycho. Like, why why are you bothering with this? All you're doing is colorizing it Um, and losing a lot of what is so important and exciting about the original Night of the Living Dead. It really just shows a spotlight on why Night of the Living Dead, the original, is so great, which is good. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. We should, show a, we should be throwing a spotlight on how amazing the original Night of the Living Dead is, but this is just needless. It's pointless. It doesn't need to exist and never justifies its own existence in how it's executed. And thus, Night of the Living Dead 1990 is a complete waste of time. Uh, Brain Dead is number 13 on our list, and Brain Dead's got one of the great posters of all time. 
Uh, it's really nothing more than that <laughs> in terms of a movie. The poster is way better than anything you're going to hear, hear about this movie. Uh, Brain Dead stars Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton. Uh, and uh, uh, Pullman is a doctor who works in trying to reanimate brains. He's trying to bring ba- brains back to life. Uh, and he's recruited to kind of to to essentially investigate the brain of a man who is in a, a mental institution. Uh, his friend, played by Bill Paxton, wants this sort of technology that this guy's created, and he wants to use Pullman's technology to scan this guy's brain and essentially get that information. The poster for the movie is this stretched out face that is animated. You can, it's got eyes and a mouth and it looks like it's alive. Uh, but the, but it's just a face and you see it in the movie where they're torturing this face kind of with, with, uh, electric prongs to try and get it to react to stimuli to see if it can still be alive, even though it's not connected to a body. That has absolutely nothing to do with the plot of this movie <laughs> whatsoever. It's just an image that somebody thought would be cool to put, a, you know, put on a poster and put it in the movie. And it does appear in the movie, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the movie, which is about Bill Paxton essentially slowly going insane and ending up in a mental hospital. And <laughs> was he crazy? Was he not crazy? Who cares? Doesn't matter. The movie is a total waste of time. The only thing anybody remembers is the poster. And the poster has absolutely nothing to do with the movie. It's utter nonsense. (laughs) Coming up next on our list, uh, talking about the horror movies of 1990. As part of my book project, uh, Horror in the 90s, which is, uh, I'm hard at work now. I'm in 1991 uh, on the book so far. And I've done, I think, four or five movies from 1991. Where there are far less movies. You're talking far less movies in 1991 than you are in 1990. I think there's only about 11 in 1991, which is down, obviously, from 23 movies, 23 horror movies that were released theatrically in, uh, in 1990. That's, that's, again, one of the many things that I'll be covering in the book is you know, the, the way the distribution models and and the decisions of which horror movies get made, which ones go direct to video, that kind of thing, is going to be part of the overall book. Number 12 is a movie that got a very small release and uh, is not well-remembered at all today. It's called Mirror Mirror. Uh, It's directed by Marina Sargenti, and that's really the most notable thing about it, is that there weren't many uh, female directors uh, in the horror genre in the 1990s. Uh, it was a it was a very male dominated place. So when you had a movie that was directed by a woman, it was notable. And thus, uh, Marina Sugenti directing Mirror Mirror makes the movie notable, but doesn't necessarily make it good. Uh, the mo- other notable things about this one is that it stars uh, Karen Black, of course, a horror icon, and uh, Ivan DiCarlo from the Monsters makes an appearance in the movie about an evil mirror. It's about an evil mirror. And that's it. That's just it. The mirror, the mirror kills people. <laughs> it's, the, it's an evil mirror movie. Uh, how the mirror kills people? Good question. That's uh, really not very well addressed. I guess it kind of possesses uh, the lead actress, who is named Rainbow Harvest, who uh, immediately left the business after this movie came out. Uh, 
<laughs> just was totally done with with movies in general, not just horror movies. She was done with movies in general uh, once this was over. Uh, yeah, it's a killer mirror, which is uh, an absurd premise, to say the least. Uh Ranking right alongside, I would say the killer was it. It was an Amity, Was there an Amityville movie that had a killer lamp? <laughs> in, in, in that pantheon of legendary possessed items that are able to kill people, uh, which is more absurd: the killer lamp of Amityville or the killer mirror of Mirror Mirror? Is a, a question I I intend to uh, to ask when I'm when. <laughs> And I'm writing the book as well. But yeah, Mirror Mirror, uh, 1990, made no movie, made, made no impression on the culture, is not remembered today, uh, but it is my number 12 horror movie of 1990. Uh, number 11 is Exorcist 3. Uh, and this was initially planned on being much higher on the list, but I watched Exorcist 3 again uh, for the first time after, you know, Bob and I watched it. We had a pretty great experience when it, when it was turning 30 back in uh, 2020. Uh, I, and I think I might have just been my pandemic brain being very, very kind because when I watched it again, it is so absurd and so silly that it's kind of impossible to take Exorcist 3 seriously. It is such a... It is a bizarre film. Uh, the, the vision that uh, William Peter Blatty, the director, had here uh, alongside uh, his star, uh, George C. Scott, Grows to such an absurd, uh, w- grows in such an absurd way that it really it's hard to take the movie seriously, and especially when you come back to that dream sequence in the movie, uh, which features Fabio as an angel and angelic uh, Patrick Ewing, and just so much other bizarre, otherworldly nonsense. I was just sort of confounded by this movie the second time I watched it. Uh, the first time, like I said, I was kind of intrigued by it and kind of excited by it because, I mean, it was weird and different. And, you know, George C. Scott has such the, this such this intense personality uh, as the lead character, uh, Kinderman. He's such a, you know, he's such an interesting character in that way that I kind of bought in. The second time I watched it, you know, you, you, I, I saw that kind of George C. Scott sort of stands apart from everything. Uh, he's so serious and so you know, grounded uh, that everything else around him seems even more absurd. And that really did kind of take away from the movie. But really, it was just so all these absurd elements that started to stand out the second time I watched it. And now I've seen it at least three times uh, since the first time I saw it. And it gets less and less interesting each time I watch it. And that's why Exorcist 3 isn't much higher on this list. Uh, because it just, again, it gets so... It, it doesn't hold up well on multiple viewings. Number 10 is a really weird choice. <laughs> I don't know actually how I ended up putting this movie so high on this list. Because it is such a... It, it's bad. But it's bad in the most interesting of ways. Shakma is a uh, animal-based horror movie, and it's about a killer baboon. Uh, <laughs> it's a killer baboon movie. Uh, animal rampage horror movies uh, are you know, a staple of the genre. Uh, when you're talking about movies like Cujo or you know, just any, the birds even would be in that, in that vein. 
Uh, there is a there's a history there when it comes to uh, killer animal movies, and Shakma is the easily the most forgotten of the of that minor horror horror subgenre. No one remembers Shakma. I uh, no one remembers that Christopher Atkins and Roddy McDowell starred in a killer baboon movie, but I do. <laughs> I remember. I am keeping this movie alive. Uh, Shakma is about uh, a group of scientists, uh, one scientist, Roddy McDowell, and his uh, scientist students who are planning to have a, a night of fun at their college. They're going to have uh, a game that they're playing that they're all going to be locked inside the building trying to find each other, and it's kind of a murder mystery game. What they don't realize is that a baboon who had been treated with this experimental rage virus earlier in the day and they thought had died is actually not dead and is now fully enraged and is going to be (laughs) running around tearing people's faces off. Uh, If this movie were gorier, if it had embraced that sort of level of uh, bloodiness a little bit more, it might be a little bit more memorable. Uh, As it is, it's, it's not terrible. Like, Shaq was not a terrible movie. It's bad, but uh, it's, it's bad in some kind of interesting way. Uh, I, I kind of admire the fact that there was a killer baboon movie in 1990. That the, uh, the idea that, and I kind of admire, you know, the, this movie having the ambition to question the science behind animal testing, which it really is about that. It's about the ethics and morals of animal testing and, you know, horror movies tend to be a good place to to examine such high-minded ideas. And while this movie isn't very successful at doing that, because I think it's too low budget and uh, the people involved probably aren't the ones capable of that level of, you know, intellectual curiosity, but they're here to make a horror movie. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. They're here to make an exploitation movie, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but it is, you know, again... it. it I don't think Shakma necessarily meets the potential, but that it even tried at a time when, you know, there's not a lot of imagination in horror movies. Uh, I think it's impressive in that way. And I kind of like Shakma. I kind of do. I would kind of recommend it, honestly. Uh, It's my number 10 horror movie of 1990. Number nine is Hardware. This one's hard to find. Uh, Jeff had to go out of his way to uh, get me a copy of Hardware. Uh, and, uh, they just, I don't know why it's not available. I think it's the director for the most part has, uh, he's not a popular guy. <laughs> he's not a guy that, uh, after you know, what happened with the Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, this, this particular director kind of fell out of favor. He kind of lost his mind for a while and, uh, became sort of a figure of, uh, just nobody wanted to talk to him, really. <laughs> I'm talking about, of course, Richard Stanley, uh, who made this movie before he met he met and uh, had Marlon Brando destroy his career. Uh, Richard Stanley made Hardware in 1990 with uh, star Dylan McDermott, who was uh, forced upon him by the studio. Uh, Miramax made this one. Uh, they they said, you know, if we're gonna make we're gonna give you money to make this movie. You need to have you need to take our star, and our star is this guy. Dylan McDermott, who wasn't a big star at the time, but he was somebody that, you know, Miramax, Harvey Weinstein, uh, they, somebody, it was somebody they believed in. They wanted to make a movie star, and they thought this could be a vehicle for that. Uh, it's a film that's set in the future world where 
people are you know kind of becoming robots and there are robots that are kind of running the world and there's a resistance against robots and uh, this particular robot is one that was found in the desert and rebuilt and it becomes this killer robot and it's all set in this one location this apartment building where there's this woman who uh, is the girlfriend of Dylan McDermott's character Stacy Travis and she makes art out of these uh, dead robots and this one happens to come back to life and starts a life or death struggle. And a lot of that is pretty good, uh, especially the look of the robot. Uh, it's got a very unique look with a, an American flag on its skull and uh, you know, lots of wires. And it uses these needles uh, filled with poison to kill. Uh, and the needles that come out of its mouth, which is kind of awesome. There are elements of this that really work. Uh, it doesn't quite you know, stick the landing in terms of being a great horror movie, but there are so many big ideas in it. And I really like Stacey Travis. Uh, her performance is really strong in this movie that it kind of makes me recommend hardware. I wish it were better. I wish it was kind of one of those hidden gems, but overall it's just kind of good. And it's not, uh, not one that I would say it's a must see. And it's certain, it, it wasn't nearly as surprising as I was hoping it was going to be. Number eight is Tremors with Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, classic monster movie. It's got elements of comedy to it. Uh, a lot of fun performances. Uh, Michael Gross uh, really changing his entire career uh, with his performance here. He went from being the dad on Family Ties and this kind of milk toast guy to being <laughs> this weird survivalist character, uh, uh, Gummer. And... <laughs> And from here, he, from Tremors, he goes on to just make Tremors movies, basically. That's basically what he does with the rest of his career. And, hey, good for him. Find your niche. It was certainly a, like it's a complete departure from who he was on TV. And that had to be very exciting for him. And he seems to ver really enjoy this. And uh, He has a lot of fun playing opposite uh, Reba McIntyre, who plays his wife, who's a very welcome cameo. This is the only one of these she does. She doesn't come back for any of the sequels. Uh, nor does Kevin Bacon, I think. Uh, Fred Ward, I think, might have done one. But uh, Kevin Bacon's having a great time here. Weird weird place for Kevin Bacon to be in this movie because at the time he was kind of, a, he was still kind of a big name. He still he was, had a number of big movie star performances leading up to then being in this movie, which seemed not to knock Tremors. I think I like Tremors, but it's, it was a step back for him to be sort of an ensemble player in a movie when he'd been, you know, garnering all these lead roles after Footloose. It was an odd place for him, but he makes it work, and, and he, his movie starness uh, doesn't overwhelm the fact that this is a B-movie monster movie, and that's uh, a credit to him that he's able to blend into an ensemble so well. Number seven is uh, Stephen King's Graveyard Shift, and this is one of the real surprises of 1990. Graveyard Shift is not terrible. I did not have... Uh, high hopes for for graveyard shift i went into graveyard shift thinking this is going to be a slog this is going to be one of the tougher movies to, uh, to get through it didn't it has you know almost no reputation <laughs> really graveyard shift uh it's not a movie that's particularly uh well remembered but i had a phenomenal time watching graveyard shift uh the story goes that there the it's basically just this gritty, grimy, gross place that's in this... I don't even remember the premise. Hang on. <laughs> I gotta find my review. 
This is so pathetic. I have to find my review. What is this? Because I, I did, I did like this movie. I really did. Where's the review? Where's my review of Graveyard Shift? It's here somewhere. Child's play. Graveyard Shift. Graveyard Shift is grimy and gross. Uh, I had zero expectations. It's mostly just this forgotten monster movie based on a Stephen King short story. And it's really surprising how boldly gross and silly the Graveyard Shift is. Ralph Singleton is the director. He has only one, one other credit uh, for, for movies. Uh, this, <laughs> so this is, actually, this is his only feature film credit. Uh, his only other directorial efforts are episodes of Cagney and Lacey. So you would expect, you would not expect this to be a very good horror movie based off of that. Uh, you also wouldn't expect it to be very good because it stars a guy named David Andrews and who the hell is David Andrews? Uh, but David Andrews is a drifter who arrives in a small new England town looking for work. He takes work at the mill. Uh, the mill, this textile plant uh, is run by a guy named Warwick played by Stephen Mocked. Uh, it has a reputation for people who work the shift that this guy works, the graveyard shift, uh, where people will, will die horribly, uh, oftentimes crunched up in this uh, machine. Uh, there's this giant monster in the movie, and it's actually a pretty great monster. Uh, for, for a movie with this low of budget and this low of ambition, they, they create a pretty great monster. They also have uh, Brad Dourif in this movie, who plays a an exterminator who, you know, there's a lot of rats, a lot of rats in this movie and a lot of rats in this, uh, in this, uh, area where our main character works. And, uh, you get to see a lot of Brad Dourif being, uh, an exterminator until he has a horrific death scene, which is a, a tremendous scene. Uh, I mean, David Andrews is not a great actor. There's a reason why you don't know who David Andrews is. And I, I think he holds back some of uh, the potential greatness of graveyard shift, but there's enough good here in terms of Ralph Singleton's inventive direction and this really terrific monster that I actually really liked Graveyard Shift. Uh, enough to like, obviously, to put it in my top 10 for 1990 and to tell you, yeah, you should definitely, you should watch it. Give Graveyard Shift a chance. Number six is Child's Play 2, which has got to surprise a lot of people. You know I don't like Child's Play. You know I don't like the original Child's Play at all. I'm not a fan of the original Child's Play. I think it's a terrible movie. Uh, but Child's Play 2, as <laughs> as bizarre as the uh, rebirth of Chucky is, they did their best with it. And they hired better actors. They hired, they got a better cast here. Uh, they've got a better idea, essentially. Uh, what really I, I like about this, and again, we're talking another great Brad Dourif uh, piece of work here. Brad Dourif, of course, the voice of Chucky, gives Chucky such incredible life. But the actor who I really like here, who really kind of makes this thing work for me, is Christina Lee. She is having so much fun being in this movie and playing this character. She's like, she's the best part of this. She plays a, an older sister, adopted sister to the main character uh, who has been uh, Andy, uh, played by Alex Vincent. He survived the original one. Now we're told that his mom from the original has lost her mind. She's in a mental institution so he's been adopted by a new family and taken in and being raised by them and he she, and Christina Lee plays his older sister who ends up being his protector in this tremendous actually very exciting uh third act the third act where they finally arrive at uh, you know, 
Chucky trying to kill Andy and they're back at the good guy factory. All the stuff that they do in the good guy factory at the end of Child's Play 2 is a lot of fun. Uh, I'm not a Child's Play fan. I don't care for the Child's Play movies. I don't think Chucky is a great villain. I don't think he's an all-time iconic horror villain, but I like what they do with him in this movie. And I like the way they use the character and I like the way they use the set, especially that uh, third act set is tremendous. It really worked on me. I... It worked on me in ways that I didn't expect because I didn't want to watch this movie because I didn't like the original Child's Play, but I'm glad I did. I'm glad I'm working on this project because I, I really enjoyed Child's Play 2 enough to actually make it my number six horror movie of 1990. Number five is Arachnophobia. Arachnophobia is a, a pseudo-horror movie. It's a monster movie about spiders uh, specifically killer spiders from South America who come to America in a small California town. Jeff Daniels is a doctor who's new in town. He's brought his family there. Uh, and he, with his arrival, comes also the rival to these spiders who start killing people, and he starts getting kind of blamed for that. Uh, you got uh, the late, great Julian Sands in this movie as a spider expert who discovers these killer spiders and is part of the reason why they're able to make their way back to America. A very entertaining movie. They come up with some really original and fun, exciting ideas. It's a kind of a funny movie. It's kind of a broad movie in many ways. Uh, John Goodman, of course, is tremendous as a as an exterminator in this movie. Exterminators of popular characters in uh, <laughs> '90s horror. Uh, you've got two of them in 1990 that play uh, key roles. But yeah, arachnophobia. I was not a fan of this when it originally came out, and now I'm I'm uh, I'm a convert. I'm a I'm a fan of arachnophobia now. Number four is going to be controversial because a lot of people would say that this is supposed to be the number one horror movie of the year. It's certainly the most successful horror movie of 1990, but it's my number four. It's behind three other horror movies that were released in 1990. I'm talking about Misery. Uh, Kathy Bates in her Academy Award winning uh, role. Uh, and James Caan, of course. And this is, I, th- I think Misery is fantastic. I think it's a great movie. Uh, I think it's a very basic movie, though. And uh, when I was writing about Misery, I was talking a lot about Rob Reiner as the director. Rob Reiner is not a visionary director. Uh, he's not a bad director. I don't mean to, ta- to say that, that he, I'm not trying to say that he's a bad director. He's what well, in our show that we've come to call a carpenter. He's a guy who puts things together well. He, he crafts a movie in a way that, that makes sense. Uh, that, that he crafts a movie as a carpenter would, just putting the pieces in place and, and making them functional. And this is a really functional horror movie. It functions well. Uh, but is it a great uh, movie? Does it have any deeper thing about it? And when you examine like the opening scene, not really. There's nothing really there that, that uh, I like. I'm a big student of the opening scene. And the opening scene here is just, it's not much. And then it really kind of shines a light on just how overall empty the idea is. And it's all about just essentially executing one's very specific idea and ex- executing it well. But there's no soul behind it. There's nothing at the heart of misery that, that uh, for me anyway, you might you might disagree, but I, I don't find anything to be there beyond, uh, much beyond that premise. Uh, still a very good movie, though. Uh, an extraordinarily well-crafted movie. It's my number four horror movie of the year, but there are three other horror movies that I think are actually better than Misery. One of which is Nightbreed, uh, directed by Clive Barker. And uh, 
this is a movie that shocked me. I had no, I'd never heard of Nightbreed. Never heard of Nightbreed. I think I've, I think I have a vague memory of seeing the box for Nightbreed uh, in a blockbuster video years ago, but I don't have much other memory than that. Uh, Nightbreed is a, is a great movie. Uh, a guy uh, dies. He he feel he's been. He's got this vision. Uh, he's always had this vision of this place that he think, thinks exists where there are these sort of ugly monster characters. Uh, he's always thought they existed, but he wasn't sure. Uh, there's also this serial killer going around played by David Cronenberg, and he decides to pin his murders on this guy and ends up killing him. And uh, all the while, he's also trying to find this place that, uh, that the main character has been talking about so he can get there and you know, kill these monsters as well, uh, or at least use them as, as a way to blame them for his killings. It turns out the monsters are actually good people. They're, they're actually not monsters. They're actually just souls who are trapped in this place that uh, happens to be in a graveyard in an alternate universe sort of thing. Uh, but they're all really great characters, and the character design is fantastic in Nightbreed. That character design is just spectacular. There's so many great-looking characters, and Clive Barker, of course, is known for that kind of uh, amazing creature design, and, and makeup, makeup design especially is so good. But uh, I love Nightbreed. Uh, this movie is so entertaining and so exciting. It's such a great horror movie. Uh, Craig Sheffer is the star, and he does an amazing job as well. It's one of the most underrated horror movies of the 1990s, and I cannot recommend it enough. It's got this sequence. The Masked Killer, uh, played by David Cronenberg, uh, has this sequence where he's, where he's killing a family. And it is so tense and so exciting and so well-directed that it, it just makes me wonder why Clive Barker didn't get to do more incredible things as a director. Did he choose not to? Because, I mean, truly, there's no reason why he shouldn't have gotten much bigger than he was. He was a tremendous visual director on top of being a, a great mind for horror. Number two is a, another controversial choice, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Uh, this is another one for me that I knew it existed, but I didn't know, I didn't recall how good it was. Uh, there are three uh, Tales from the Dark Side here, or four if you count the, the wraparound about a kid who has discovered a book and is is trapped in a witch's uh, uh, cellar and is telling this, uh, using this book to tell the witch stories, trying to delay his death uh, by, by, at the hands of this witch, uh, played by Blondie, uh, Debbie Harry from Blondie. Uh, the three stories are tremendous. The best one is a, a story about a mummy that involves Christian Slater, Julianne Moore, and Steve Buscemi. Uh, just so, in, such an incredible use of the, of the mummy uh, uh, horror trope if you will, like the, it's not like your traditional, you know, the, the mummy from the universal monsters, but they're taking the premise of a mummy character and using that to enact a, a short horror tale that is very scary and very exciting and just incredibly well-directed. Uh, that's a tremendous thing. And of course, we've got a bunch of really great directors working on this as well. So that really does help. Uh, there's just, I mean, just three really great horror stories in Tales from the Dark Side of the movie. I liked each of them. Like I said, I liked the mummy one the best, but all three stories are really fantastic. And uh, I cannot recommend Tales from the Dark Side enough. It is the second best horror movie of 1990. 
One more controversial choice for my number one horror movie of 1990, and that is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. That one is controversial only because that film was actually made in 1986. Uh, But it did not receive a wide release until 1990, so it counts. It's horror in the 90s because it was released in 1990. Its influence comes in the wake of that release in 1990. It had no influence on people prior to that because it barely existed in the public sphere when it was from when it was made to 1980 in 1986 to when it was finally released in 1990 i might sound i'm probably sound very defensive about this but i've had people ask me like how can you put henry on this list it came out it was actually you know made in 1986 and was released in you know limited release in 1987 and it never achieved a wide release in that version. Like it, 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 at first, it didn't receive any kind of wide attention until it actually received its theatrical release in 1990. And thus, when we're talking about influence, we're talking about the impact that the movie made. The movie only made an impact after that 1990 release. After that 1990 release, it makes you know the video nasties list over in England. Uh, it achieves fame that way. Uh, it gets banned from many movie theaters in America as well for being so insanely violent uh, and depicting such grisly horror. Uh, but in so doing, this is an incredible film directed by John McNaughton, uh, rich- written by Richard Fire and John McNaughton, starring J- Michael Rooker and Tracy Arnold and Tom Tulls. It's based on a real serial killer, uh, a pair of real ser- serial killers, and it is an unflinching... Uh, look at the actual horrors committed by serial killers. Uh, Michael Rooker plays this character in such a way that makes him seem mundane. It makes it seem workaday, how he enacts his horrific killing. Uh, But the depiction of those killings, the way that the artistic representation, the presentation of those killings, the unflinching look at the absolute horrific things that he did to his victims is so powerful and it makes this film so much more than a horror movie it makes it so much more confrontational it really sticks it in your face just how just the, the the true epic horrors enacted by serial killers and especially by these two uh men who have now you know spent the rest of their lives in prison uh this is not directly based on Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, but it is, it, is a, it is inspired by them and takes from them the horrifically hor- terrible things that, uh, that Henry Lee Lucas did to his victims and forces you to really take a look at it, confront it, see it for yourself, and try to take that in and understand the absolute horrors that were inflicted and... and Seeing it is just so powerful. It really is just so much. It's really more than a horror movie. It transcends the genre to be something that is rather essential, I think, in American life uh, to to actually confront what these people are doing when they do it. The the true evil that can exist in the world. That's what makes you know portrait of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer so powerful. And it's my number one horror movie in 1990. Uh, Thank you for joining me for this uh, solo edition of the I Hate Critics Movie Review Podcast. We'll be back to normal next week with uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, Five Nights at Freddy's, and our uh, 
Martin Scorsese top fives all coming up on the next episode with myself, uh, Jeff and Bob. I believe they'll both be there as I understand it. So, uh, but thank you. This has been a special one off. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I, I did. I enjoy talking about this stuff. And of course, if you want to support uh, horror in the nineties, you can make donations via uh, horror.media. You can make donations via the Kofi account, which is linked in my reviews on horror.media, which of course are all over our uh, Facebook page as well. And we'll have links up as well uh, in the show notes. But uh, thank you uh, for being part of this and uh, consider uh, supporting me in writing horror in the 90s. I'm going to write it anyway, whether I get any support for it or not. I'm still going to write it. Uh, I'm already through, like I said, several movies into 1991. So this is happening. Uh, but I would love to have some support for it and uh, to, to, to back me up and to keep me going on this journey through the horror films of 1990. This is the I Hate Critics Movie Review Podcast. Find us on Facebook, uh, I Hate Critics. Find us on uh, Twitter, at uh, CriticsPod. Uh, on Patreon, search I Hate Critics, and so much more. We're also on YouTube as well, so you can, wa- you can listen to the podcast on YouTube uh, anytime you want to. Thank you.